Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, this year marks 100 years since the first woman was elected to Congress. 100. That was back before women even had the vote, and to say that their rise into positions of political and corporate power has been slow going, well, it's the least you can say. Reporter Jay Newton Small has written about why that is and why it makes no sense. In her new book, Broad Influence, How Women Are Changing the Way America Works, she had to dig for information and hire a team of researchers, but the data she discovered reveals how a critical mass of women in public and private leadership positions clearly benefits both realms. Jay Newton Small is Time Magazine's Washington, D.C. correspondent. She spoke at Town Hall Seattle on June 13th. Thank you to Jenny Cecil Moore for our recording. Here, Town Hall's Edward Wolcher introduces our speaker. Jay Newton Small is a political correspondent for Time. Uh, she joined the magazine in 2008, covering Hillary Clinton's first campaign and her tenure at the State Department. Uh, she has served throughout Europe, the Middle East, and Australia, and in her career, she has focused extensively on women's roles in uh, government. To this effect, she has interviewed every female member of Congress, as well as every living past and present female cabinet member, um, a, an experience which has helped uh, influence the subject of tonight's book, Broad Influence, How Women Are Changing the Way America Works. And actually, I'm going to seed the room with a question, because I, I know that you write a little bit about Patty Murray in this book. I don't know if you were planning on talking about Patty Murray, but if she doesn't mention Patty Murray, I would love somebody to ask a question. I'm so interested in Patty Murray. Um, <laughs> like, uh, not that way. Uh, like, the way that she is sort of quietly been sort of keeping the government afloat uh, in budgeting processes over the past few years. And to the extent that gender sort of inflects the way that she, you know, mom with tennis shoes does her job as a senator and yet is in some ways the most powerful uh, and important sort of critical Democrat in Congress, I I just think it's so fascinating. So I'd love somebody to ask a question about Patty Murray, um, (laughs) given all of that. So with that seeding and my, uh, my, my personal interest out of the way, please join me in giving a warm town hall welcome to Jade Newton Small. Thank you so much to Town Hall for having me here. I'm really excited to be here in Seattle and uh, the home of Patty Murray, as <laughs> um, as as, uh, as was noted. I actually have a whole chapter on Patty Murray in the book, so there you go. Um, I so I originally got the idea um, to write this book about two and a half years ago during the government shutdown, um, and I wrote a story for Time about the women of the Senate coming together um, during the government shutdown to restart the negotiations to reopen the government when none of the men would talk to each other. Um, And I had a lot of interest in writing a book out of that on the women of the Senate, but the women of the Senate were all writing their own books and didn't need one from me. But what interested me most about it was that it was the first time the Senate was 20% women. And as someone who'd covered the Senate on and off for the better part of 13, 14 years at that point, you could really feel the difference. It was like a tangible difference of the feeling of the Senate, how it was run, what they did. And indeed, they ended up actually producing 75% of the legislation that was signed into law in that, that two-year period. So they had a huge impact. It was really amazing. Um, and so I got really interested in the idea of critical mass. So the idea that somewhere between 20 and 30% in any body, whether it's a legislative body like the Senate or a corporate board, a Navy ship or an appellate court, women really begin to change the sort of feeling, the change the culture of an institution, and they begin to change the way things are done. So, um, 
What really inspired me first off was um, I had more mail in response to that particular story than I'd ever had in response to any story I'd ever written for time. And that includes two cover stories and Sarah Palin, so that tells you something. Um, and I... Um, and a lot of the letters that women wrote to me talked about how they were experiencing something similar in their careers and in their fields, this kind of tipping point. And so I had a woman from the Navy who wrote to me about how um, in the, in, uh, on Navy ships, uh, they mandated that all uh, uh, that women had to be at least 20% with a goal of 25% on all Navy ships. And they first integrated the ships with officers, female officers, so that the men could get used to taking orders from women and respecting women. And then they brought in the rank and file. And she said that this had happened because after the Navy was ordered to integrate in 1973 by the Supreme Court, um, they uh, they tried and failed to really bring women in, you know, by bringing first in one woman, then a handful of women, and then ultimately they sort of almost struck upon critical mass as, as accidentally and, and realized that this is the way to do it. Um, I had a letter from a woman who worked for the 30% Club um, in New York City, which is a group that actually aims to get 30% women on corporate boards throughout America. Um, And she said there's so much research that they had done, and it was amazing, compelling research that showed that you shouldn't just have women, you know, brought into your companies or have women's programs in your companies for the PR effect of it, but you should have women's programs because they were so effective. Women brought, like having 30% women on your board made your company 26% more efficient. It, you had to restate your earnings 55% less. There were two studies, some of, my, some of my favorite studies that I looked at, where having 30% women on your board actually made the male board members come to the meetings more prepared because the women were so much better prepared. Um, And they were 45% more profitable. I mean, who would not want that for your company to have it 45% more profitable? And so it was all this amazing research that showed this, like, compelling case of why, why you should have diversity on your board, why you should have more women in your company, and yet people were, companies were only doing it as kind of PR things, like, right? Like, we, we, yeah, we, we support women, whatever. So I thought it would be really amazing to collect all the areas where women were reaching critical mass and sort of show where um, they were making a difference and, and the difference that they made, and then, um, and then sort of illustrate why you should have more women on these, in, the, in, in your in everything, in your board, in your legislature, everywhere. Um, One of the first big surprises I had in collecting all this research was that the public sector actually is reaching critical mass in all three branches of the government. So Congress is 20% women. Uh, The administration is 30% women in terms of upper-level civil service and political appointees. Um, And the federal bench is actually 36% women. And 40% of state judges are actually women. So they've made a lot of um, progress in the public sector, but the private sector has actually fallen behind. In the last decade, they've stalled at 17% corporate board representation and about 20 to 21% representation um, in executive suite workforces. So I was curious, why was the public sector doing better versus the private sector? And there are a bunch of reasons for this. Um, One, women tend to self-select to the public sector because if you're going to miss your kids' soccer games, if you're going to miss tucking them in at night, you wanted to be feeling like you were making the world a better place for them. Two, uh, unions were actually a lot stronger in the public sector than they were the private sector, and so women's jobs are better protected after they left for maternity leave. Um, And... 
Three, the on-ramping in the, in the public sector was actually better for women. So if you look at New Hampshire, one of my favorite states, not just because it votes early, um, but it is actually the most representative democracy in the nation. So the lower house in New Hampshire is 400 people who represent 3 million people, right? So it's a very tiny leap from running for school board to running for state legislature because you literally represent like 100 more people. <laughs> like, so... Um, New Hampshire, because of this, is it's one of 36 states in the union where being in the state legislature is a part-time job. And so for women joining the state legislature, you could have young kids, you could sort of do it, you know, part-time. And then as your kids got older, you could take on more responsibility and you could start chairing committees, running for higher office. And in New Hampshire, this has led uh, women to become in the last five years, not only the governor, the lieutenant governor, half the state senate, but the entire congressional delegation has been women. So um, it's been a very successful way for women to come into the workforce, particularly uh, in the public sector. The place where women struggled the most um, in both the private sector and the public sector was actually executive office, which I thought was really interesting. So all the things that help women get elected to legislatures like um, or to corporate boards, frankly, the idea that women, um, and you can never say that women are monolithic, right? Women are always going to be, you know, there's always going to be some women who are more aggressive and some women who are more risk-taking. Um, but generally speaking, studies show that women are better at consensus building. They're better at... Um, at win-win scenarios and finding, like Patty Murray did uh, in the chapter that I write about her with Paul Ryan, um, an end to the fiscal cliffs, you know, looking for a win-win and a lose-lose for everybody on board and therefore um, not trying to, like, kind of kill your enemy thing. Um, unfortunately, executive office requires killing your enemy. Either it's, it requires talents and win-loss scenarios and zero-sum games and, and really command and control decision-making in ways that um, require little input from others. And so women are perceived, rightly or wrongly, to be not very good at executive offices. So that's why there are so few women in them in America. So less than, actually about 5.1% now of the Fortune 1000 companies have female CEOs. Only six of the nation's 50 governors have uh, women at, the, at their heads. And 17% um, and of mayors in America um, are women. And so um, it is the hardest glass ceiling for women to break. And I think you see that right now in the election, right? We've only, we've never had a woman who's been at the top of the ticket of a political party and only now with Hillary Clinton has this um, actually broken through. Um, in interviewing women, successful women, sort of CEOs and, 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 and candidates for executive office, um, they talked a lot, and, and in fact, I interviewed your, your governor here, thanks to my friend Lars, who used to work for her, Christine Gregoire, who's here tonight, um, uh, about, for, the, for this book, and she talked about being a, a running for executive office and the challenges that females face or that women's face. And so um, the first time you run for office, you are perceived as uh, not tough enough. You're not capable enough. So there, women face a capability test in running for executive office they don't face for any other office. Um, and so you have to prove yourself capable. You have to prove yourself tough enough. You have to show that you can, you know, have your finger on the button at that time of the month and, like, not nuke Russia. And... They also, though, had to, it's a very thin needle to thread to also show that you're still likable at the same time. And so Christine Gregoire actually talked a lot about how the first time she ran for governor, um, she really had to show she was capable, show she was tough. Um, and then the second time she ran for governor for re-election, she was already too tough, and she had to show that she was likable. Um, and so... In a similar vein, Hillary Clinton, when she first ran for president in 2008, and I covered that race, 
um, when I joined Time in 2007, she really ran as a man. She ran, um, you know, with a lot of generals and, you know, was campaigning next to her and talking about how she could take, she was able to take that 3 a.m. call. Um, and when she cried, I don't know if you all remember the moment where she, she teared up in New Hampshire um, and when she thought she was losing New Hampshire and her race was over, um, it was the moment where Mark Penn, her chief strategist at the time, freaked out and said, there is no crying in politics. You have not only lost the race, you've lost the, like, your career. Like, no one will ever respect you again because you've cried. And it was actually the most authentic moment of that race for her. And she ended up winning New Hampshire on the backs of female voters. But this time around, she has been a lot freer to run as a woman, arguably, right? Like, so she can talk about um, equal pay. That's her biggest applause line. She can talk about childcare or paid family medical leave or paternity and maternity leave. Um, and yet she still faces the challenge, as Christine Gregoire did running for her re-election, of being likable. So Bernie can, like, yell at you for 40 minutes, and you're like, yeah, yell at me for 40 more, right? Like, he's, like, really fun to listen to, and he's, like, revolution and, you know, starting a movement. And Hillary, you know, is, has, faces a lot of challenges. When she yells, everyone's like, oh, my God, why is mom yelling at me? She's so shrill. Why is she screaming, you know? And these are the sort of subtle sexisms that, that women face. I mean, you cannot have a woman raising her voice without people saying, she's so shrill, right? Or um, she's also boxed into a pragmatic zone in many ways where um, like Barack Obama in 2008 could dream huge and talk about the arc of the moral universe bending towards justice and, 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 and Bernie can talk about $15 trillion healthcare plans but Hillary is forced into kind of the pragmatic role of mom being like no, Bernie, we can't afford that jet ski. We need to save for college. Um, and so these are the kind of subtle sexisms that women still face running for executive office in the United States um, where you have to really show that you're likable, and that's a tough, tough needle to thread, I think, for a lot of women, as we're seeing with Hillary. I am cusp millennial, sort of uh, Gen X generation, and I think one of the cool things about writing the book was really discovering... Um, that my generation, uh, millennial generation, is the first generation born just assuming the equality of the sexes. And it's only been as the millennials have aged into the workforce that they've realized like, that the assumed equality didn't really necessarily exist. Um, and it's been kind of a wake-up call. And you see this sort of fascinating movement amongst millennial women with like Taylor Swift demanding with her girl posse, demanding recognition at the Grammys, or Jennifer Lawrence asking for equal pay. You see these sort of millennials just beginning to engage in this sort of feminist movement and, and join the sort of ranks of um, feminism, which... Um, and yet there's a big disconnect between that and, Hillary, and the idea of Hillary as the first female president. And so millennials assume that there will be a female president. That's one of... You know, they just think, oh my God, there's... Of course there'll be a woman president in my lifetime because... Why wouldn't there be? What Hillary struggles to do is is to say why it has to be her to millennials, like to say what she would do differently and how she would govern differently and how she would represent them differently. Um, but one of the cool things about millennials in, in, in looking at this and writing about this is that they are really changing our workforce. And they are, millennial men to some degree, are, are responsible for changing our workforce in ways that even millennial women are not. So women overall still make up 60, 76% of, our, of the housework and child rearing in America. 
But millennials inverse that. Millennials, women only make up 67%. So 30% of the first contacts in America today are actually dads for kindergartners rather than moms. Um, as millennial men take on more and more responsibility, they want to be more and more involved in their children's lives and take on more and more roles in um, housework and child rearing. And so you look at the place like Silicon Valley where, you know, they're horrific for women, generally speaking, and the advancement of women, but they're actually really good with men in terms of child rearing. So they, they've almost completely deconstructed this stigma of men asking for flexible working hours, of men wanting to be stay-at-home dads. So Silicon Valley, 50% of first contacts for kindergartners are actually men. And they lead the country in asking for more time off to, re, you know, do child rearing, to pick up, go to their kids' soccer games and things like that. When I was um, writing the book, I also was really heartened at the idea of critical mass. And so critical mass comes from, it's like a scientific term. Um, it comes from science. It actually is the idea that it's the point at which a chain reaction can no longer be stopped. So in a nuclear reaction, for example, it's the point at which you can no longer stop the bomb from going boom. But it's been applied to sociology, actually, for decades. So when they, act, when they integrated schools in the South, um, they actually mandated a quote-unquote critical mass of 20% of minority students in each school because otherwise the schools just didn't work. Um, and I kind of loved the idea. I, was, I had always assumed parity was this kind of pie-in-the-sky notion. I would never see it in my lifetime. And that, you know, and I never thought, you know, I just didn't really think about it as, as a journalist, but, uh, and especially as somebody coming in when I did, covering the White House 13, 14 years ago, there were so few women. I, I, you just felt like we're so far away from these things. Um, and I was really sort of delighted to find, not that parity is not important, because I think it is critically important, and, then I, and I actually have come to believe that we will achieve parity in my lifetime, but that I was sort of tickled to find that we could be heard at less than parity, that we could make our voices known at somewhere of like 20 and 30 percent. We could really have an impact and begin to change things. And once we got there, the whole universe changed for us. Um, but I, I, I do think it is important to get to parity, and I do, and here's why I think we will get there in our lifetime. So women first came into the workforce um, in the 1940s, thanks to World War II. You remember Rosie the Riveter? She, like, women really, we would not, we would not have survived the war, the economy would not have survived the war if women hadn't been brought in to bring in the crops and build the planes and build the boats that helped us win the war as all the men were off fighting. But it wasn't until the 1970s that uh, that all the laws banning married women from working were fully repealed. Um, with that, I should say banning women from working without their husband's permission were fully repealed. Um, and I also should amend that women clearly worked before World War II. It was just they were not paid. <laughs> um, and But it will be economic necessity that fully brings women into the workforce. By the year 2030, um, the baby boomer generation will have fully aged out of the workforce, and we will be short 26 million workers. It's kind of hard to imagine, given the economic downturn we're just coming out of, but we are actually facing a huge demographic cliff in America. There are only two ways to solve that problem. One, you bring in a ton more immigration, which is really hard to imagine with this Congress. Or two, you bring women up to full employment. Now, that's, uh, that actually solves the gap by 23 million workers. It almost completely solves the gap. Um, women actually already have the talents to do this. They make up 50% of college degrees and more than 60% of graduate degrees. They're just not using the talents that they have. 
Um, but this is not going to happen naturally. It's something that we will have to force a little bit. And so the next president, no matter whom he or she may be, will have to begin to push to bring more women into the workforce. Um, and there are models that we can sort of look to in order to guide us. Um, Europe reached this demographic cliff well ahead of us a few years ago, and their solution was to impose quotas. Again, that's really hard to imagine this Congress actually imposing. Um, but there are other solutions. Um, the 30% club that I mentioned earlier that exists in New York is actually the sister to the 30% club in Canada and the UK, which is a public-private partnership on the prime ministerial level, which actually really engages and brings in a lot of women um, thanks to the government's push to bring in more women to the workforce. But perhaps the best model is the somewhat unfortunately named program, the Male Champions for Change in Australia. Um, I say unfortunately named, but I actually do love the idea because we're not going to do this by ourselves as women. It's not going to be the 5% of Fortune 1000 CEOs who are women who are going to bring every other woman into the workforce. You have to engage men in this process. You have to empower men in this process. And so Australia did it by challenging the prime, the prime, the prime, the prime minister excuse me, the Prime Minister of Australia challenged all of the CEOs of the country to very transparently report how many women they were recruiting, how many women they were training, how many women they were retaining after they, uh, after they left to give birth and then came back. Um, and it ended up being an incredibly successful program. Um, so in the six years that it's been in existence, they've actually increased um, female participation in the executive workforce from 27% to 47%. And it's been really powerful. Something like a quarter, 25% of all minors in Australia are now women, thanks to this program, which is kind of stunning. Um, and... And it's been really powerful, I think, because of the transparency. So one of the big hurdles I had in writing this book, and um, my endnotes are incredibly voluminous because I wanted women to have a whole arsenal to explain to people why they should be hired and why they should be promoted and all this sort of data and studies behind, look, it is such a great business plan to promote and empower women. Um, and I found it amazingly difficult to actually collect all this data. And I, I wrote much of the book when I was a fellow at the Institute of Politics at Harvard, and I had eight amazing research assistants. And even with those researchers, we found it really hard to collect all the data because there really isn't anybody collecting all this data in America. And you would think it would be a no-brainer, right? Like we would know how many women are in the workforce, but we actually don't. So it took, for example, for me to figure out that 30% of the administration in the upper level of, of the sort of middle and senior management um, were women, I had to talk to the 13 departments of the administration, the White House and four labor unions to get that number because nobody is collecting it. Um, if you look at in the private sector, the, we know roughly overall how many women are in the executive workforce, but that's because the companies that report it are given anonymity to report it. So no company specifically reports it unless they want to, and you don't actually report it unless you are really proud of it, and very, very few of them are actually really proud of it. So the first step, really, for everybody is just being able to, like, let's start collecting the numbers. And that's a real challenge in America. Like, it, there is a surprising dearth of data about women in the workforce. It's kind of amazing. Um, for example, just take, I have a chapter on women in policing. In an era of Ferguson, in an era of riots in Baltimore, why wouldn't you want more women in your police force? Women um, always look for a cerebral, verbal solution rather than a physical one. Um, they almost never draw their weapons. Anise Parker, who is the mayor of Houston, actually um, commissioned a, a report on um, how many times people drew their tasers after Houston introduced tasers a few years ago. And in the first two years of, draw of, of that report, the female cops 
draw their tasers a, whole, a grand total of zero times compared to their men who'd drawn them dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of times. Um, women, men make up 98% of the excessive force cases um, in terms of, uh, for lawsuits in the country, that for police, um, women are almost never drawn up in excessive, course, excessive force cases or charges. Um, and in, while at the same time, importantly, they still have used the same amount of regular force, which I think is really interesting. Um, and yet, the last police agency or the last police association for women nationally that existed in America went defunct two years ago. There's absolutely nobody tracking the numbers of police women in America city by city, and each city is ad hoc. Some cities are great at it, other cities are terrible. So I guess what I would say is, in closing, the book... the. The real thing to do is really like, and I challenge you as, as individuals, is to go and collect the numbers. And there's Generation W is a group that I've been working with. They, um, they, they, are, a not, they are a nonprofit who sort of um, begin to challenge and, and empower women on local levels. They are collecting all this data. They have a scorecard that you can look up online, and you can start filling out how many women are in your police force, how many women are in your city government, how many women are on the boards of your local companies. Because without getting a sense of this data and these numbers, we're never going to get a sense of where we are and where we should go from here. And that's the first step to parity down the road. Um, and that's pretty much the book. So I look forward to your questions. Thank you so much. Hello. Hi. Thank you. And uh, let's see, for the male champions for change in Australia, mm -hmm. they had improved 20, 27% to 40%? 47% in the executive workforce in Australia. So what were some of the components that made that happen? So... Um, Basically, transparency to some degree, um, and I don't know if you know anything about the Australian press, but they're pretty vicious. <laughs> so they, um, they set these goals every year, and they had a, a, a lunch with the prime minister um, and all of the CEOs, and the companies that did not make their goals were basically, like, totally harshed on. And, like, they were like, oh, my God, these guys suck, basically. And, and then everybody who did make their goals, they applauded, and they, they celebrated. And it was, like, a massive PR um, kind of incentive to make your goals. And it was like literally nothing else beyond shame that got them to do it. <laughs> huh. Okay. Um, what would you suggest, like, c c in Seattle, maybe we could gamify? How would you Yeah, I would something? love, I mean, I welcome all ideas. Like, anything that gets us to, like, this data that gets us there. I mean, there's, a, there's I've been talking to other groups about, like, collecting data or finding ways to do it. I wish, I mean... I can't even begin to tell you how hard it was to, like, collect this data. And I thought, naively, of course we know how many women are in the workforce. Of course, you know, we know how many women work for the government and how many women, like, you know, are working for companies. We totally don't. It's amazing how little we know about this um, and, and how little is actually reported. I remember going, there's a, there's a women's bureau at the Department of Labor, and I asked them, okay, what can you tell me? And they were like, well, you know, IBM had, like, 17% women in 1998. And I was like okay. <laughs> and they were like, yeah, you know, that was the last year that they reported to us because it's all voluntary. And I was like, wow, um, that's totally not helpful. <laughs> you know, like, it's really amazing how little is actually reported on this stuff. And until we get a sense of the numbers, and it's going to take, like, people out there, like women in every community in America starting to report on these numbers to really get us there because it's not, there's not one group that has the, the money or the ability to go out and get all this data themselves. It has to be a grassroots movement to, like, kind of collect all this data. And it is until we have it that we're going to be able to do anything about it, right? Like, we won't know where our strengths are, we won't know where our weaknesses are, and we kind of know today, like, just in the data that we have, 
but it's also an anonymous. It's like roughly speaking, the financial sector has roughly this many women in it, but no company will own that, right? Like no company will say, here's how many we have. And the few companies that do, it's really interesting. So like once you get the data, and Australia took it another step, and they said, okay, now, we, now that we know how many women are in the workforce, how much are you paying them, right? And that's a whole other step that we haven't taken yet in America. How much are we paying our women very publicly, right? Like, and of course, there's this disparity of equal pay where women make 79%, 79 cents in the dollar, right? Um, and so, like, and there's been companies where that, that Salesforce, for example, which is a Silicon Valley company, I think it's actually based in New York, but it's a tech company, Two women in Salesforce challenged their CEO to prove that he was paying women equally. And the, and the CEO was like, absolutely, I pay women equally. And then like 10 months later, he abashedly came back and was like, yeah, I need to add $3 million annually to the payrolls now because um, I was not paying women equally. <laughs> um, but it just takes that kind of like challenge, like challenge your own companies, like ask them, how much are you paying women? Like, let's see, can we like do a very public test or challenge your company to openly report how many women they have, right? Like to the labor department and to others, because nobody is reporting this stuff. And until we know, we're never going to know. So just to follow with the um, request there, have the companies tell the Department of Labor? Challenge the companies to openly report it, right? So put out a press release, report it to the department. So the Department of Labor has a women's bureau mm -hmm. that is set up to accept this information and to track this information, but everything right now is voluntary. Um, and so until companies actually begin to report this information on a voluntary basis or they're shamed into doing it or they're forced or called to do it, they're not going to do it. So call on your company to put out a press release and, say, and, and report their numbers to the Department of Labor and say, here's how many women we have and at what levels. Okay. Did you guys all get that? <laughs> all right. Thank you. Hi. Hi. Um, so it occurs to me that some of the benefits that you talked about um, for having women in the workforce are a result of how we're socialized differently from men. You know, so more likely to build consensus, less likely to use physical force. Uh, and you mentioned that you know men are will show up more and be more prepared. And you know, I, that could also be in part because women feel they need to prove themselves in mm -hmm. these situations, right? Mm -hmm. So they're working extra hard. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as we get closer to parity, do you see that those results continue to play out? Or will they, you know, as I, will I learn that I don't need consensus and I can be a jerk? And that's when we are, at, you know, <laughs> parity, right? Like, how do you see this playing out over time? And uh, do you see it continuing to affect the results that we see in the workforce and productivity? Sure. So, um, God, wouldn't it be great if parity were be, would be that, like, women are jerks, right? <laughs> like, um, they say, like, like, Barbara Mikulski, who is the dean of the Senate Women, who's retiring this year from Maryland. She's been in the Senate since 1980, I think, four. Um, and she talks about how she believes parity will be reached when really mediocre women are elected to Congress. <laughs> like, because right now, you have to be so exceptional to be a woman elected to Congress. It's really, really hard. Um, so there's one of my favorite chapters of the book is a, is a chapter called Lehman Sisters, um, and it's the idea that the global financial crisis might not have happened if Lehman Brothers had been Lehman Sisters. <laughs> um, and that's because women inherently take less risk, but there's also um, a lot of really fascinating studies that are being done on neuroscience these days and that show that women's brains function 
fundamentally differently than men's do. And that's and like and that is what part of the diversity that we bring to decision making. So even if we do function a little bit more like men down the road, we do fun we fundamentally bring like chemically different reasonings to the table. And so um, there's a book and I, I forget the name of it, um, but it's by a guy named Dr. John Coates, who was used to be a former trader. Um, he worked for Goldman Sachs and I think Bear Stearns in London. Um, and he w- he became a neuroscientist, um, went back to school, studied neuroscience, and then actually went back and studied this because during the dot-com bubble burst of 2001, he was so fascinated by, like, the male behavior around him, and he thought, this is just not rational, right? Like, these guys are, like, making these insanely risky bets that no rational person would make, and then when the market crashed, they weren't selling when they should have. And so he, he started to theorize that financial bubbles were created by men and testosterone. And he actually then started swabbing traders' cheeks in London and figuring out how much testosterone they had and then correlating it with the bets that they made that day. It was a fascinating research. Um, And found that the more testosterone you had, the more likely you were to place riskier and riskier bets. And the more likely you were to, like, if you won those bets, the testosterone, there's a winner's effect, right? So the testosterone would then double down because you won and so you would even get more testosterone. So women excrete estrogen. And so that is the antidote to testosterone. So just having physically more women in the room would burst that bubble. (laughs) It was kind of fascinating, right? Um, And then on the downside, and I'm going to massacre these names, I always forget them, but men secrete um, a kind of chemical, it's a hormone, I I forget what it's called, that is like a freezing agent, um, and women secrete the antidote to that. So, like, men on the downside, when the bubble burst, they would freeze, and they wouldn't sell when they should sell, and that's part of what created the bubble. Um, Having more women in the room would also alleviate that. So there's, like, a physical, chemical reason, like, why you should have more women in the room. I mean, let alone, like, diversity of decision-making, right? And, And this applies not only just to women, and there's a whole level, the levels of intersectionality that exist, right? Like minorities and women, minorities and like, you know, ages, you know, sexuality, all different things. Um, but that's like, like five other books that you could write. I mean, I just didn't, I wish I had time to do it as a woman of color. I really wanted to do it, but I didn't have time. But um, I mean, like, yeah, there's all this reasoning on why the best decision making that you can make is the most diverse kind, because it prepares you for every possible thing versus like homogenous decision making, which only looks in one, di- one direction. Thanks. Yeah. Hi. I'd like to thank all the gentlemen in the room. You <laughs> wonderful, you, wonderful souls. Um, so I live in an excellent city where we have a majority female council and we're working on pay transparency. Um, and I get to work for a lady elected official. Um, most of the, my colleagues are now younger women and we've been seeing more diversity from a staff level in addition to who's actually getting elected. Mm-hmm. And that's also very exciting. Um, But I still find myself having challenges at the intersectionality of race and gender when it comes to overcoming barriers. And I know you just mentioned you could write five books about that. But if you could give us a chapter, that would be super. (laughs) So it's so complicated, race and gender. Um, And there's, and what you can say for women that exists does not exist in general. I mean, like, cannot be applied to all women, clearly. So, for example, women running for executive office, everything that I just said about how challenging it is for women to run for executive office and how they have to prove themselves tough enough does not at all apply to African-American women. African-American women inherently are seen as tougher than regular, than, than regular women. Sorry, excuse me, that's horrible. Um, than, <laughs> like, than any other woman. 
right? And so they're seen as tougher than Hispanics, than tougher than whites, tougher than Asians. Um, and they are, and so they don't have to prove that they're tough enough, right? So Stephanie Rawlings-Blake, who's the mayor of Baltimore, she actually did, had to sort of transition the other way and show that she was softer because she was perceived as too tough. Um, lesbians are also seen as way too tough. And so one of my co-fellows at Harvard um, was a woman named Christine Quinn, who ran for mayor of New York against Bill de Blasio. And Chris Quinn, who I adore, um, was amazingly enough considered too tough to be mayor of New York, which kind of astounds me because this is a city that produced like Ed Koch and like Rudy Giuliani. And I was like, I didn't know that there was such a thing as too tough to be mayor of New York, but okay. So she was, um, she's a lesbian. She was the former speaker of the city council. And she talked a lot about, um, when I interviewed her for the book and, and when she was with me at Harvard, she talked a lot about being authentic and Christine Gregoire actually talked a lot about this as well, and, and Patty Murray too. Um, and the idea that, like, when you've gotten through your first races and you have kind of, um, you can begin to kind of, and you have some kind of name recognition, you can kind of run as yourself versus, like, running as a man or running as somebody else on a man's field or somebody. And, and, and that was really powerful. And so, and so Chris talked about how she used to, um, in her speeches, I don't know if you know what Chris looks like, but she has really short red hair, and it's not a color known to man. Um, and, like, and so she used to talk about how it was part of her economic development program to get her hair to this color, um, which was like, took a lot of work. And she, one of her, and her fa- one of her best friends was her gay hairdresser. And she called it part of her economic development program for New York, how much money she spent on her hair. Um, and so the New York Times kept asking her to do a profile of her gay hairdresser. And she was like, oh, my God, that's so sexist. You would never ask Bill de Blasio about who does his hair. No, you can't, you can't write about my hair. But she regretted it in the end because she was perceived as so tough and Bill de Blasio was not perceived as tough. And she, and that was part of her speech and it is part of who she is. Authentically, she loves getting her hair done. Authentically, she loves her hairdresser. That is a big part of her life. And so she felt that, you know, if she ever ran for office again, which I know she totally will and she'll go on and do amazing things, um, she would be open to doing stories about her hair because it, it was authentically heard and humanized her and it was like part of her life, right? But, and that was sort of her lesson was like, you know, you have to just be unafraid whether you're, um, you know, an African-American or a lesbian and you're considered too tough or whether you're an Asian woman and considered too weak or a white woman and considered too weak to just run authentically as you and, and be unafraid to let the voters kind of judge you as you. So Christine Gregoire actually told a great story about um, how uh, when she ran, I guess the first big press conference she gave after all of the recalls and the recounts and everything else, um, her dog had died like the day before. And um, this dog, France, the family dog was like 10 and her daughters were devastated. And somebody in the press conference asked her about that and she teared up and started crying. And, um, and she was so mad at herself for crying because she was like, women do not cry in politics. You can't cry. No. And like, you know, and she, she canceled her afternoon, sat in her office and was like, God, I, I just can't believe I did that to myself. Like I, you know, and then she ended up getting like, a huge bump in the polls because people love that she cried. And it's a really appropriate time, like, when your dog dies to cry, right? Like, and I'm not saying that you should cry every day, <laughs> like, at all. But I am saying that I think progress here is to be authentic and be accepted as you, whether you're, you know, a young millennial African-American woman or a 
Gen X Asian woman or, you know, whatever it is, like, and be accepted, you know, on your own playing field and your own level. And if that entails, because a lot of women are emotional, that if, or if that entails crying, that entails crying sometimes. I get, I cry when I get frustrated and I don't want to be judged for that by my bosses, but I am. <laughs> like, you know, um, and like, and, and that's a whole very complicated set of intersectionality. But it, I also just think progress will mean authenticity, right? On any level, whatever we, whatever makes us authentically us um, and enables us to represent ourselves to others and be elected as us or um, be promoted in, uh, in our work as us, then I think that's really important. And, and, and being able to identify others who look like us or sound like us ahead of us who we aspire to be is also really important. Thank you. Thanks. My first thing is that I worked on Christine Quinn's mayoral campaign in New York City, and she's amazing, and I was totally heartbroken that she didn't win. Um, The second thing is I work in a company that's really male-dominated, and something that I feel a lot at work is once I point out to men the fact that there's three women out of 30 on my team, they're like, oh, my God, wow. You know, I had no idea. I didn't realize. And so I was wondering that if your time in covering Congress and covering politics, you mentioned earlier that you could notice a shift in the fact that when you had reached 20% of women in Congress, did you talk to any men, whether it was congressmen or other reporters, who noticed that shift and appreciated that shift and then became more invested in being those champions? Or how do you bring men into the fight um, and get them invested in a way outside of shaming them, I guess, and making them really lifelong um, feminists instead of just for their own short-term gains or recognizing that they have a dog in the fight or something? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, and I think, so the answer to your question, I'm going to, it'll be a little bit yeah. long-winded, sorry. Um, but so one of my favorite chapters is the first chapter and it's about women in the West Wing. And women in the West Wing had a really hard time in Obama's West Wing. Um, they actually had critical mass in terms of numbers. They made up 39% of the West Wing um, when he first started out in 2009. But they had a horrible time. Like, I mean, with everything. They, they were shut out of rooms. They were shut out of decision-making. Things got so bad that by November of 2009, they had this really contentious dinner with President Obama and the residents where they were basically like, we are not making any progress here. And you need to, like, talk to the men because the men are, like, horrible. And Obama, interestingly, said to them, the men are doing what I need them to do. And I think you guys need to step it up. And he was totally not sympathetic and basically was like, you guys need to, like, get get it together and, like, get together. And almost offhandedly, he was like, you need to, like, start getting together and forming a cabal and, like, you know, have, like, a dinner once a month or whatever and really, you know, help each other out because it's not, like, they're not going to help you. You need to help yourselves. And so they, and, and it was, like, my favorite kind of chapter because it was really, like, critical mass in action. You could see it happening. It was really cool. So they started getting together. They started, like, um, having dinners once a month, and they started just talking to each other. The, the women of the West Wing in the Obama White House, some of them were from Chicago, some from California, some from New York, some from D.C. So they, a lot of them didn't, like, well, they knew each other kind of. They didn't really know each other. And as they got to know each other, they really got to support each other. And so... In meetings, like, they would start to really bolster each other. And this is, I'm sure, has happened to everyone in the room where you're in a meeting and you say something, and then 10 minutes later, a guy says, like, the exact same thing, and everyone's like, oh, my God, genius. And you're like, I just said that 10 minutes ago. Just said it. And so 
they would like back each other up and they'd be like, you know what? That's an amazing point that Christy made 10 minutes ago. Like, and shouldn't we thank Christy for making that point 10 minutes ago? And they would be in meetings and they would hear a topic. Because the thing about the White House is the meetings turn quite quickly from one subject to another and that they're, that's not on the schedule. And so they would be in a meeting that suddenly went from like national security to the economy. And then they would start texting each other, hey, get to the Roosevelt Room. Like right now we're talking about the economy. You need to be here for this. And Or they would... Um, if they couldn't, if that woman couldn't make it to the meeting, they'd be like, hey, why don't you, like, here's what happened in the meeting, here's who you should follow up with, this is what happened, you should, like, you know, talk to X, Y, and Z. Um, they started giving each other advice, like, kind of simple advice that I, I would think is kind of a no-brainer, but they actually were, it was really important. Like, Mona Sutphin, who was domestic policy advisor for Obama, had these rules that, like, went spread through wildfire in the White House of, like, you know, in any social situation, two-drink maximum, one-piece bathing suit, and really conservative dancing, right? Like, and these are sort of the advice that they, they kind of gave to each other, and they really began to form a sisterhood. Um, and things got to the point where um, in 2011, um, there was this, the chapter kind of culminates in this scene where... Um, the, by 2011, the two deputy White House chiefs of staff were two women. It was the first time that those positions had been filled by women. It was um, Nancy Andaparl, who was chief of staff, deputy chief of staff for policy, and Alyssa Mastermonica, who was deputy chief of staff for planning. Um, so between these two women, the entire government was divvied up, and everything fed through these two women to the chief of staff and then on to the president. Um, and they were so frustrated with men, you know, in, in the West Wing. They used to have these little Smurfettes that they put on their desks, and they kept waiting for the men to, like, ask them about the Smurfettes, and they never did. Um, and, like, um, and they actually changed their names, their Secret Service names. It was really funny, from, like, these super masculine names to Peaches and Popsicle. So they used to love watching the Secret Service be like, Peaches is here. <laughs> um, and, um, and, they, and, they, and they sort of enforced these rules in the White House where – we would have these meetings, and the men always sat around the table in these meetings, and then all the junior staffers would stand around on the sides, and the women always stood, and the men always sat. And it, and the men, even if it was like, and they kind of joked, they were like, even if it was like a meeting about like how like birth control made you feel, like the men would be sitting at the table, and the women would be standing, right? And so at, when they became deputy chief of staff, they reimposed different rules, and they said only the germane people who have expertise in the meeting can sit at the table, even if you're junior staff. All other staff have to stand up, including senior staff. And they, and they enforced it, right? But so the, the idea then, so then... It, by the summer of 2011, the president was in the middle of the grand bargain negotiations with Boehner and the Republican House, um, and there was a meeting one Sunday that the women had been left out of, and it was a meeting with David Plouff and um, Larry Summers and Rob Neighbors, and who was um, legislative dire affairs director at the time, and the women were um, like who were left out were Nancy Ann DePaul, who was deputy chief of staff of policy. She ran all policy in the White House. So you can't really leave her out of a meeting where you're going to decide policy. Nancy and oh, sorry, Melissa Mastromonaco, who was deputy chief staff for, for for planning, who ran the budget at the time. So you can't have like a meeting about a budget agreement and not include her. And then Stephanie Cutter, who ran communications at the time. And so they gathered in front of the in front of the Oval Office, and they were kind of like, "This is bullshit. We've been left out yet again." And they just decided, you know what? We're just going to walk in. And so uninvited. They walked into the Oval Office, and they sat down. And the president was like, hi, guys. And they were like, hi. And nobody said anything, and they just participated in the meeting, but everyone got the message, and they were never left out again. And so I'm told that the second 
term in the Obama White House was like vastly different, and it became kind of like a yaya sisterhood where it's like almost run by women. Um, but it was it was it was a real watershed moment for them, and it was something that kind of um, you you have to. And, and I guess this is a long way of saying you have to kind of take it. You know what I mean? Like you have to kind of take it for yourself and, and, and insert yourself sometimes and be confident and be able to like kind of just be like, you know what, I'm going to own this. You also have to, um, as much as empowering men to like help you, you also have to show men that you're capable and you're willing and you're able and you want to do it and you're going to do it. Does that make sense? Yeah, thank you. Hi. Hi. Uh, you mentioned that uh, you know you inter- you've interviewed lots of elected officials who are women, and have you found that there was uh, any difference in elected officials, as you said, building more consensus, more compromise? Was there any difference in um, how elected women um, kind of work to uh, put into put into act uh, promises that they made to their constituents when they were running, you know, saying taking more compromises, accepting poison pills, versus men who maybe didn't build consensus and didn't take as many compromises in enacted legislation? That's an interesting question. Um, so yes, kind of, sort of, and I would say that there's a party divide here. Um, kind of, sort of. So... The women, the chapter that I have in the women in the Senate, it, the the main character is actually Patty Murray. I wasn't I wasn't kidding. I have like a whole chapter on Patty Murray. I, she's amazing. I think she's she's fascinating what she's done for the Senate. Um, but Patty Murray was very indicative of, and, and the reason why the women of the Senate did so well in that session, the 113th session, which stretched between 2012 and 2014, was because the as Democrats they actually controlled almost half the committees in the Senate. Nine out of the 20 committees were chaired by women. So they actually ended up producing, like, that, that's how they produce so much legislation. Um, that, with Republicans taking over the Senate, now women only chair two committees, and so it's kind of backtracked a little bit. Um, but the women do function very differently in that they insist, and, and, the, and, and this is what the chapter is often about, they really insist on building a personal relationship with the people they're negotiating with. So a lot of the reason why the fiscal cliff kind of lurched and happened, you know, and, and Obama and Boehner couldn't come to an agreement and, and, and Ryan and, and Harry Reid and Mitch McConnell couldn't come to an agreement was because they just fundamentally didn't trust each other and they played a lot of games with the negotiations. And so there was a lot of brinksmanship, there was a lot of poker playing. Um, and Patty Murray was not about game playing. She was like, here's, I just, she was like, I actually, she, and these are also men who either know each other far, far too well, like Reed and McConnell, or don't know each other at all, like Boehner and Obama, and so didn't trust each other. Um, Patty, her first meetings with Paul Ryan, she didn't want to know anything about the budget. Like, they were the two budget committee chairmen. They, They were like, she was like, I don't want to know, I don't want to talk budget at all. She was like, I want to talk about like, how'd you grow up? How, what did you do? And it turned out that her, you know, father, um, when he was diagnosed with, I think, Parkinson's or ALS, when she was 15, forced them to go, her and her family, to go on food stamps for a while. Paul Ryan found his father's dead body when he was 16. He died of a heart attack. Um, and they were on welfare for a while. And, you know, they knew what it was like to put themselves through college. They knew what it was like to help their parents, their struggling single parents, to make ends meet. They knew what it was like to work from a very young age. They, they shared, 
a love of fishing, and they shared a love of football. And I'm going to massacre the football analogies because I know nothing about sports, but they put everything into football analogies after a while. And so Patty would be like, here's my 10-yard line. And Paul would be like, here's my 20-yard line, right? And they would go back and forth and back and forth. And they were very blunt about these discussions. And they formed not just a partnership but a friendship. And to this day, they are very close friends. They rib each other all the time on Twitter. They... Like, you know, they, he challenged her to the ALS ice bucket challenge thing. Like, you know, um, they, they are still really, really close. And he, he, coming into the speakership, he told me he had spoken to Harry Reid all of once in his life at, 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 at President Obama's second inauguration. They had one sort of 20-minute conversation about Reno, Nevada, of all things. Um, and he'd never spoken to Harry Reid, but he knew Patty Murray really well. And he was like, if, any, if I'm going to deal with anybody in the Senate, it'll be Patty, you know? So Patty was very indicative of the women of the Senate, like where they, they really formed relationships with their counterparts, like Barbara Boxer, who was the chair at that point of the Environment Public Works Committee, um, her counterpart was a guy named um, James Inhofe, who was from Oklahoma. James Inhofe is one of the most conservative Republicans in the Senate. He's a climate denier. Like, and the, and the Environment Committee, it's kind of like you can't even imagine what they would get done, right? But they love each other, like love each other. They like are best friends. She went to like his dog's funeral like last year <laughs> like in Oklahoma. Like, you know, they're, they, they have meals every week and they are functionally really like close. And they produced the water resources bill. They produced um, the transportation bill. I mean, they, they got a lot of stuff done, even though they are ideologically from other ends of the spectrum because they are friends and because friends first. And that's the way women in the Senate function is very much friends first. And then and legislation grows from there. Let's start with where we can find common ground and then let's build on that. Um, so the danger here, I think, in, in terms of your question is, is, is a party danger. So Republicans have long, and I, and I write about this and I have a chapter about Republicans where I, ironically last year I focused the chapter on somebody who I thought would never have a ghost and chance of winning the Republican nomination, Donald Trump, um, and, and about how he struggled to connect with women. And so the Republican party used to be the party of women. They were the party that passed the 19th Amendment and that gave women the right to vote. And Susan B. Anthony was a Republican. A hundred years ago this November, the first woman elected to Congress was Jeanette Rankin, a Republican from Montana, four years before women got the right to vote. They were the first party to, to name female ambassadors. They were the first party to name a first female Supreme Court justice. But they have struggled to elect women in this, you know, in the modern era. And they have, and they really, you talk to Republican women, just this last week I interviewed Susan Collins for time. She talked about how she, she might even vote for Hillary Clinton at this point. She's so disheartened about her party's nominee. Um, they, they are like an endangered species on Capitol Hill because women are perceived, rightly or wrongly, as being more moderate. Um, in primaries that has killed them for, for Tea Party primaries on the Republican side. They literally cannot get it through Tea Party primaries. Even if they are like Michelle Bachman's, they cannot get through. And, um, and they have declining numbers in Congress. It's been really brutal for them. And so until the Republican Party figures out how it can elect more women, and, and it is, I think, the biggest danger to the advancement of women in Washington because you, you can't have all the advancement on one side. You have to have advancements on both sides. You have to have bipartisan partners to create legislation on both sides. And right now, that's, that's failing. And until the Republican Party can realize you know, how to appeal and elect and, vote for, and get women to vote for them, it, it will be very imbalanced. Does that 
I think I, I don't know if I kind of meandered off your question there. No, no, that was, that was good. And if I can ask a second question. Uh -huh. um, you mentioned that the, ten, you know, the research and uh, tendencies of women when working in building consensus is kind of counter to what executive uh, traits are. Mm -hmm. So what would be, so are you saying that the research shows that women should be more like executives or are you saying that there is that fundamental paradox that is just something we have to deal with or what exactly is the, you know, so it's a paradox. I mean, it's a paradox. The research finds that we that we are, you know, that we are consensus building. That we are, you know, this is the way we trend to be. I don't know that we can like. We're not going to. We're not going to change our nature. Like, right? Studies will always show the way that like that basically women trend this way. There are obviously going to be women who don't trend that way, right? Like, so the woman Blythe Masters who created it was a woman who created the credit default swap. She, and arguably, they call her the the in London. They've dubbed her the destroyer of universes. Right? She was the one who, essentially, you could argue, created the entire global financial crisis by by masking so much risk. Um, so there are women who will fundamentally take risks. That you know, there are women who will act more like men, no matter what. Um, but generally speaking, the way studies show is that you know, there's a reason why. 97% of microfinance lending is done to women. You know what I mean? Like, because women are more risk adverse, because they don't drink away and gamble away those funds the way men pr pr proved themselves to do when all lending was done to men. Um, and so, the, I mean, there are, I mean, and, and this may change over time, but yeah, I mean, that's just the way studies show that women are. And that's just something you have to deal with and move on. <laughs> okay, thanks. Cool. I love this. The question is my favorite part. <laughs> okay, sorry. I don't fully have this baked in my head, but I figure I'd try anyway. And first of all, your memory is absolutely incredible for all of these numbers. <laughs> I can remember <laughs> none of them at all. Thank you. Um, so I'm pretty astounded about your memory for all the names and numbers that you're keeping in your head right now. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so I, I moved to Seattle in 2009, right after I graduated from college, and over the number of years when I was just starting out my career after having graduated, I kept hitting roadblocks. You know, and I know this is it's not a unique situation. A lot of people have that same problem. You graduate and you don't get your dream job and you have to work your way up and that's totally fine. And I'm totally expecting that. However, as I've kind of gone on like through time and now I'm working at a tech company and I've got a great job and I love it, but I keep seeing women moving to Seattle because their boyfriend or husband or some, someone got a fantastic job at Microsoft or Amazon, and they can't find a job, and it takes them two years, three years, to actually kind of get started in their career. Mm -hmm. And so then when they get started in their career, you know, it's not that they're necessarily getting paid less, it's just that they've started a few years after mm -hmm. their significant other. So, you know, I'm getting paid the same starting wage that my husband got paid, but he started getting it five years before I did. Mm -hmm. And so now I make 76 cents? I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't 79 cents. 79 cents yeah. to the dollar that he's making pretty uh -huh. much for the same job at the same age. Hmm. Well, not the exact same job, but with, you know, similar level jobs. Uh -huh. So how do we, as we're starting out our careers, how do we, you know, not at that top level, but how do we, when we're not in a position to hire women and not in a position to do that ourselves, how do we support other people that are moving here mm -hmm. or any city <laughs> is applicable for this as well to kind of keep that from happening on the very front end? 
because you know you've talked a lot about like when you get into this like here's how you but it's like well how do we get into that situation in the first place great question and then i'm gonna go sit down okay yeah i'm nine months pregnant no dude that's amazing you're even here um that's awesome so um two i guess two parts that answer one i would say um so women tend women tend to and there's, I'm trying to think of like the best way to start this. Um, I'm not the only one no, no, no. So no, no, you're right. Um, so two things, I guess. One, women when they are so women. The last recession was a man session, right? So more men lost their jobs than women. And more small businesses were started by women than men um, in during this sort of economic downturn. But women lack the confidence to actually dream bigger than men. So very few women. So if you started, like, let's say, a bakery, um, you didn't necessarily dream bigger and think, I'm going to go, instead of getting small business funding for, like, one bakery, I'm going to go for, like, the chain and go for five or three or ten or whatever. Men tend to, like make the leap to a much bigger dream than men than women do a lot earlier. And so a lot of that has been just a confidence problem of women dreaming smaller. And you just need to dream bigger and kind of like, you know, don't just go for the financing for one thing. Go for like the chain, you know, like let's just like go for it, you know, like don't like with with startups in in, in Silicon Valley, so many women, you know, will only do f- friends and family rounds of financing and the number of women who actually do like series like larger series, like one, two, three, A, B, or C, or whatever rounds of financing, it's like three percent, like of of the of tech startups are actually run by f- co- women co-founders. Um, so part of the problem is just having the confidence to kind of make that leap, you know, and like leap into something that is the unknown, and not just like don't just apply for like the like next tier job go for something bigger, which men tend to do. Like, like the jobs that brought the men here, they are making a leap, potentially. And, like, and the women are like following, but then they're also not aiming as high, necessarily, as, or for whatever reason, as the men are. And so, um, so I guess I would say aim big and, like be, and, and don't worry and, and be prepared to fail, but also know that in failing you're succeeding, too, because you're gaining experience that can lead to potential more, you know, successes that you know what I mean like it's not a failure to lose a small business to some degree if it gives you the experience to then launch a next small business that is even bigger and better than before right and women just don't like you saw this in the women in the white house they they didn't so they didn't have the confidence to um to really speak up in meetings right so men will always like so part of being in the White House is you're always functioning on like somewhere between 25 and 40% information because you're drinking from a fire hose and nobody knows 100% because it's this massive government and there's so much going on and it's like everything moves at such a quick pace. And so men are much more comfortable speaking out and saying, like jumping into like, you know, subjects that they have no idea about and they have like 5% information and they're like, yeah, but this is what we should do. And you're like, you have five percent information there dude like maybe you should not be talking um and so but women will have like 70 percent information and they won't talk because they're like i only have 70 percent information like that's not prepared you know like that's totally wrong 
And I remember talking to like Carol Browner, who um, was the environment uh, EPA commissioner, EPA administrator under Clinton, and then the environment czar under Obama. And she was like, she realized this when she she used to spend days angsting over what she would say at a, at a cabinet meeting. And finally, she'd get to the cabinet meeting, and she would like be like, okay, this is what I'm going to say, and I'm going to like plan it out. And she. She during one of the cabinet meetings, or right before one of the cabinet meetings, like towards the end of her tenure, she asked a couple of her male counterparts, like, so how much time did you, like, prepare your remarks for today? And they were like, I don't know, like, five minutes? <laughs> she was like, seriously? <laughs> like, five minutes? That's it? And they were like, yeah, no, five minutes. And she was like, why am I killing myself over, like, thinking this, you know, for, like, I've been angsting for days about what I'm going to say. This is ridiculous. And so, um, you know, I think a big part of the coaching that went on in the White House and for the, amongst the women was be prepared to make decisions on less information and be prepared to speak out and know that your voice is valuable on less information but still really important to hear because everybody's functioning with less information but everybody, you have to have the diversity of voices otherwise there's no point. Um, and I think that that's a lesson that you can apply to the private sector as much as the public sector. Be prepared to make a leap and, and, and apply for jobs that you think you may never get right? Or, or start a business that you think may never succeed or make those leaps because women are much, much less likely to make those leaps. They, it takes, like they say, and this is, I don't know if this is ever true, but like they say it takes a woman seven times to be asked to run for office before she finally runs for office because she's so afraid of that leap. So I guess, I don't know if that makes sense, but like, I think my, my lesson here is don't be afraid of leaps. And I think a lot of it limits women in the workforce is ambition it not it's not the ambition but it's it's being to, willing to take that risk that leap moving forward and jump a lot farther uh sorry um thank you so uh because the seven fi figure is commonly referenced and referred to and i'm going to ask about le elections um <laughs> please run for office ladies yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> So I'm a big authenticity and feelings fan, but in terms of actually running for office, it does seem that there is a disconnect between um, what you're allowed to do. And so what um, I felt was really interesting was like how the White House ladies kind of really accrued power within themselves. Mm -hmm. And if you have any examples in terms of how that has happened within um, uh, people running for office, outside of the like you know organizations that have helped stem it, like if there were like particular like tools or ways for people to run for off office that have helped themselves um, yeah. push back on the narrative. So um, the Barbara Lee Family Foundation um, is a group in Boston that helps women run for executive office. Um, and they run something that I sort of call, I don't know, I dub it girl governor camp. I don't really know what else to call it, but it's a camp that for women running for governor and for executive offices. And they, and they do it for like women running for you know, and not just governor, but like women running for insurance commissioner, women running for basically executive office within states. Um, and it's actually cool. It's a cool thing. And they and they, they, they bring you in and they bring in a lot of other women who've run for office and either succeeded or failed. And they give you lots of advice. And so Kathleen Sebelius, when I interviewed her, talked about how she would not have known to do what she did when she was running for governor um, if she had not gone to girl governor camp. And the example that she gave was she, it was during her first debate. She was insurance commissioner and she, some, and, and she totally killed the debate. She like won the debate hands down and the main paper in Kansas, she was governor of Kansas. The main paper in Kansas 
I think it's the Kansas Star. I'm not sure. Um, like the lead of the story was Kathleen Sibelius, Sibelius, comma insurance commissioner, comma who wore a green suit with open-toed shoes and pink toenails, comma like you know one Tuesday night's debate, and she was like wait, what? <laughs> like, who would, I'm like, in your right mind would think that it's okay to describe my toenail polish and what I was wearing in that lead paragraph, right? And so, um, but she'd gone to girl, girl governor camp and somebody in girl governor camp, and I can't remember who it was, and it, but it's in the book, um, had told her when people call you out on your appearance, um, you have to like look up who the journalist is and see if they have daughters, um, and if they do, you have to kind of call them up and shame them a little bit. And so she had one of her staffers, she didn't do it herself, but she had her spokeswoman call up the man who had written that story and who happened to have a 12-year-old daughter and say, would you really want your 12-year-old daughter to be described this way when she runs for office down the road, if she ever does? And he was completely mortified and apologized and said he would never do it again. But and a lot of this for you know is is unconscious right like a lot of the sexism isn't like something that men consciously are like I'm going to write this about women and that's what I that's the way I envision women and that's the way I think of women and that's it a lot of it's just like that's the way people have written about women for a really long time and so a lot of it is just changing the narrative changing the way we describe ourselves and that just takes like women telling other women this is what happened to me so you need to like be prepared for it and then when this happens this is what you do and and so Girl Governor Camp for Kathleen Sebelius really made the difference. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Hi. Thank Hi. you so much. Thank um, you. I just actually wanted to ask you to comment a little bit on the Bernie bro and like the kind of phenomenon within activist communities of gender kind of being subordinated. I think of like in the 60s, Stokely Carmichael saying like women have been helping the movement on their backs. And then I feel like that's been replicated a little bit here. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm really interested in that and like the phenomenon of like women being ashamed of supporting Hillary because she's a woman um, and like how we can get activist men interested in critical gender analysis. And then secondarily, I'm curious about like Anne-Marie Slaughter, she's talked about how we need institutional change and if, if that's gonna happen. And you brought up, like you've talked about parity. And I'm wondering if like you think that we can actually get legislative change on a national level happening that would you know, influence parental leave and a whole variety of issues. Great series of questions, and you might have to remind me of some of them. Um, so, um, okay, so Bernie Bros, they totally exist, and they're not fun. Um, and, like, I have dealt with a lot of them online. Um, I, I will say that at this point in the 2008 election, I remember covering the Democratic National Committee's Rules and Bylaws Committee meeting, which was a very obscure meeting that happened at the Marriott Wardman in Washington, D.C. at the end of May um, in 2008, and it was about whether or not they would seat the Michigan and Florida delegates because Michigan and Florida had jumped ahead, this is more than you need to know, um, in, the, in, the, in the line, and they had their delegates stripped from them. If they had seated all of those delegates for Hillary, she would have come within striking distance of Obama in 2008. And there were like probably 300 women there, um, Pumas, Party Unity My Ass, like which the, what they call themselves. Um, and they literally, I mean, through temper tantrums, like two-year-olds, when the Democratic National Committee decided to split the delegates be evenly between Hillary and Obama. I mean, these are like 60-year-old women on the ground, on their stomachs, 
like hands and like legs flailing, screaming. I mean, it was like a scene. It was like a serious scene. And I remember standing there with Harold Ickes, who was Hillary's delegate, delegate counter at the time, being like, oh my God, like, is the party ever going to be able to unite? You know, like that is, it was a pretty formidable scene. And there was, there were all these women, including Lynn Forrester, De Rothschild, who are like, who was like, we're never going to unite. She left the Democratic Party when worked for John McCain because she was so unhappy with what happened that Obama stole the election from Hillary, right? And, um, and so this always comes down to this moment, right, in, in any election that's even close where the loser has to, like, come to grips with his loss, you know, or her loss, and, and then find a way to unite the party. And we always, the press loves to say that the party will never unite. My guess is that given the prospect of Donald Trump over the next five months, the Democratic Party will unite. Um, it's just a guess, but, like, I don't know that that many Bernie people are going to vote for 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 Donald Trump. I mean, maybe they will because he does equal change, you know, to some degree. And and the pendulum always swings away, right? Like you always look for the greatest change from the current status quo. But that really only rings true when you really don't like the status quo. So like, you know, when George, H, George W. Bush was so unpopular, people looked, I mean, he like, especially in the last month when he like tanked the economy, people looked to Obama to like, to, you know, as the greatest amount of change, right? Um, in this case, with Obama's approval ratings over 50%, are they going to be looking for that much change? I don't know, and we'll see. I mean, that, that remains to be the test for Hillary um, in this election, and I think that um, it is a challenge for her because he, Donald Trump clearly represents much more change than she does, and, and that is, you know, historically speaking, he has the stronger case. Um, but, you know, if you look at the demographics of it, it's a lot harder, you know, his case. I mean, women don't really like him. Hispanics don't really like him. I mean, like, African-Americans, there's, like, a whole list. So, um, um, and so, like, um, but, and I, I have to say, I have, and this is, like, it's not been an easy election for me to cover because, um, you know, I've always been able to see the, on both sides of this, um, and Donald Trump, like, I, I talk to women who vote for him, and I, and I totally understand why they're voting for him, but it's, you know, most even Republican women that I talk to are very leery of him. And so on the women's side of it, you see it's a lot harder of a case for him to make. I mean, like uh, Susan Collins and others, I mean, there's just a lot of women who are very leery of him. And I think he has a lot of work cut out for him in order to convince women that he can do it. But when you talk to women who support him, they talk about how he promoted women when nobody else would in, in, in the construction industry, how his daughter is like he empower, is, is amazing and has empowered her to run his businesses. Um, so I don't know. Maybe he can make the case. We'll see. For Amory Slaughter, um, Amory is a great friend. I'm a New America fellow right now, um, so she's, she's awesome. I love her. Um, she does make the case that we need institutional change. Now, the idea of institutional change is really difficult considering that it's very unlikely that um, that the Republicans will lose control of Congress. Um, I mean, the way that the districts are done, it's just, it's I mean, even with a wave election, it's very, very difficult for um, Democrats to take over the House in particular, um, which means that you are looking at, at, at you know, and uh, Paul Ryan while, you know, he did do a budget deal with Patty Murray and is a very, you know, he's very into, like, the idea of compromise on certain levels, 
he's not going to go for childcare, and that is like the silver bullet here, right? That Anne Marie always writes about this, the one thing that will fundamentally change how American women function in the workforce is childcare, and that is so expensive, and it's really hard to imagine finding a way to pay for that. And there's no way Paul will do it unpaid. So um, finding a, a way to pay for finding a way to pass childcare that the House Republicans could stomach is really hard to imagine in the next like decade. I mean, and then you'd have to like change the control of Congress, which would take another decade. I mean, it's, it's very, um, I don't know how it's done. And unfortunately, I, I wish there was a better solution to that, um, but there really isn't. That said, there are a lot of bills pending that Republicans support that um, have been low-hanging fruit that have been sitting in front of Congress for a while that just haven't passed because of various you know, entrenchments of elections um, that I think will pass in the next session, no matter whom is president, whether it's Trump or Hillary. Um, and so some of that is Kathy McMorris Rogers has a great plan um, that would expand childcare tax credits by, I think, 1200 or sorry, 2000 to $2,500 annually a year. So increase the amount of money you get back for childcare tax credits. Um, there's like the Republicans have their own plan for equal pay that um, is something the Democrats could probably work with and that would that we could also potentially pass. I mean, there's a lot of very low hanging fruit that I think will pass no matter what. Um, but there's nothing that I would say like on a larger level, like childcare or paid maternity leave or paternity leave that will pass. Um, write this down. Would you say, in addition to the Tea Party movement, the Republican marriage to the evangelical right is another contribution to the dearth of Republican women elected to Congress? Wow, that was a mouthful. Um, I know there's a lot of stigma towards women in leadership from evangelicals, so there might be a correlation. Um, do you think if and hopefully when that union dissolves, there will be more potential for Republican elected women um, to be elected or from off base and there's another solution? So the idea is the stigma that evangelicals have for women running for office? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, yes, there is a lot of stigma that evangelicals have because the first question that is always asked of women, and this happened in 2012 when Michelle Bachman ran for president. Michelle Bachman has five biological kids and 23, I believe, or 17 foster children. So she has like a ton of kids either way. Um, and so... Uh, Rick Santorum's chief of staff openly questioned who was taking care of her children while she was running for office. Um, and Michelle Bachman said back to him, well, Rick Santorum, you have seven children of your own. Who's taking care of your children while you're running for office? Um, and so, yes, there's always going to be that evangelical front on Republican side who will ask like in, in ways that Democrats never do. Democrats very rarely ask like of their female candidates who's taking care of your kids. Like, um, but Republicans almost always do. And that's a question that Republican candidates, women, female candidates face. Um, you see, I think um, one of Donald Trump's potential running mates is a woman named Mary Fallon, who is the governor of Oklahoma, who's an evangelical, who has three children, ran for office when she had three children. She was nine months pregnant when she uh, won her first primary for state senate. Um, she is very passionate in talking about how um, a woman's place is not necessarily at home. A woman's place is at home, but also you know in, in office, and she's really eloquent about that sort of stuff. And evangelicals in Oklahoma absolutely adore her. Um, so there is a generation of women that are coming up that can speak to this. Um, Michelle Bachman spoke very eloquently to it. Sarah Palin speaks to it, you know, to some degree. Um, 
maybe less successfully these days. Um, but like, to some degree she did. Um, but like, you know, um, there are, I mean, Nikki Haley in, in South Carolina also speaks to this. I mean, there are women who are evangelical and elected to office on the Republican side who are very good spokeswomen for what they do and who takes care of their kids and how they do it. I just wish there were more because until there are more of them and until, you know, evangelicals begin to accept this and embrace it, you aren't, it's going to be really hard for women in certain areas of the country to run for higher office. And that's a, a sad reality. I just have an announcement from Town Hall. We okay. have time for probably one to two more questions before book signing. Okay, great. Thanks. Thanks. Hi. Hi. Thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Um, as we're thinking about gender equity, um, how do you envision a parallel effort to include um, non-binary folks, two-spirit folks, trans folks in these conversations and not have it be a linear first we get rights for cis women and we get this parity going and then we can start talking about other genders do you how do you envision having multiple channels working in conjunction so that the the feminism we're working towards can really be inclusive of more than just a binary so that's a great question. When I was at Harvard, there was um, a really brilliant young man who um, self-identified as a man, but was but but was is trans um, and and was very much on the feminine side of the of the scale. And he was building a scale that I thought was really interesting. That um, was a scale of masculinity and femininity. And I thought it was actually the most appropriate scale that I've ever seen in terms of people running for office because um, so much of what the kind of intersectionality exists um, when you have people, when the challenges that women face running for office has to do with this femininity and masculinity scale, right? So lesbians tend to be much more on the masculine scale and therefore they have to prove themselves less. Just um, for some reason, African-American women, I don't know why, trend more towards that toughness that African-American, that masculine scale than they do in the feminine scale. But the more feminine the, the person, whether they're a woman or a man, the harder they were, the harder it was for them to get elected to office and the greater the challenges they faced. And that's not only true for elected elect office, but also for this particular young man was going in, was trying to go into banking, you know, and was interning at Goldman Sachs for the summer from Harvard. And, um, and, and really, at the end of that summer, had a really tough time being taken seriously in banking because he was so feminine. He wore heels, he wore lipstick, he wore makeup, and, and that was really hard for him. This scale, I thought, was really interesting because it, it in, a, in a way that I think hasn't been shown in, in, other, in other sort of studies that I've seen, and it hasn't been proven. This was just his theory, and this is, like, you know, nothing that I've seen anywhere else. Um, it does, it did sort of show how women who run for office, who are more masculine, had an easier time and women running, you know, didn't have to prove their toughest toughness, didn't necessarily have to prove their capability. Um, 
And whereas the more feminine you got, the squeakier your voice, like the more sort of girly you were, the more you had to prove you were capable. Um, and that I thought was really interesting. Uh, and that, I think that scale applies to everybody running for office. And so I don't know if that answers your question at all, but I think just having a scale that doesn't look at gender, but looks at masculine and feminine qualities um, and the challenges those face kind of changes things. Slightly, but it kind of makes sense to me. Real quick, so action items for us. Huh? Action items for all of us community members and how we can go and help this movement. So <laughs> what do you have for us? Action night? A- action items. Small things that we can do. Okay, so Generation W is a group that I, I, mentioned, right. I mentioned them earlier. Yep, they have the scorecards. So go fill out scorecards. Go do that. Just figure out how many women are around you. Like, I mean, particularly, like, in all of the different areas of your life. Like, how many women are in your companies? How many women are, you know, in your police force? Again, how many women are in your offices? Um, and, and find ways to support them. Run for office. Please, run for office. Everybody should run for office here. You're all capable. Um, like, I think it's, it's so important to get women to run for office. And women never consider it. They never think about it. And it's such a great job. I mean, even if it's, like, run for your, like, local school board. Run for your local city ward. You know what I mean? Like, it's such, it's, it's a part-time job. You can do it when you have kids. Go do that. You know, become involved in your community and then build on it and run for higher office. I mean, it's so, it's so hard to get women to run to, for politics. And I just it's so important to get them into it. Um, so I guess action items is like consider and also give to elections and women never do this, right? Like giving to election, giving, giving to campaigns is something that women never do. Women, I think, and there's, I have all kinds of very compelling statistics, but my memory is failing me on this one, but there, so like, there's no woman, George Soros, there's no women, Koch brothers, right? There's no women super funders that exist. And in fact, women almost never give to campaigns. Um, and even though they can, they control the purse strings and most of the relationships. So just giving to campaigns will help those numbers because so few women actually do this. And it can be like 10 bucks, it can be like 25 bucks, but go find a candidate you support, give to a campaign. Republican, Democrat, independent, doesn't matter. Just be involved, give money, run for office, collect, like, collect information. All right, thanks. <laughs> So I found the data that you presented from Australia on transparency really compelling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think child care, maternity leave are all very expensive endeavors. But mandatory transparency to me seems like maybe lower-lying fruit. So I, what would be the road forward on that? Because I really i am just skeptical that people are going to voluntarily report their sexism. <laughs> That's probably true, but I think a lot of it does have to do with shame, right? Like, you know, and that's why it takes somebody, like, on a presidential level to call people out and say, you know what, I can't force you to do this, or don't make me force you to do this, because maybe I can, but you should do it. Uh, and there's a great business case for you to do it. There's a great business case for women to, for you to bring more women into your business. Mm-hmm. Here's why you should do it, and here's all the reasons why you should do it. Um, and, and you know what, like, and all these other guys are going to do it, so why shouldn't you? And is there anyone working on legislation in this regard, or is that off the table? For transparency? Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a couple of bills that were sponsored by... Um, so actually, I think Republican women in the House, um, but they went nowhere, unfortunately. They were, they, they, they're champion in the House because there's so few... I mean, like, literally, there are 
23 Republican women in the House. They make up 9% of their conference, which mm -hmm. is terrible. Um, they, uh, they, their champion was, ironically, Eric Cantor. And when mm -hmm. Eric Cantor lost his primary, that bill, that group of bills, kind of died on the vine. Um, and so they never, they never got passed. But there was a group of Republican women who actually, in response to um, the big Democratic push for equal pay, mm -hmm. Their response was like, you know what? We before we even get to equal pay, let's like start challenging companies to be transparent. And they they introduced legislation to sort of start to do that. And um, but it unfortunately died. I think that's that to me that in my mind that's part of like the group of very low hanging fruit of bills mm -hmm. that could very easily go in the next session. Great, thank you. Thanks. Well, thank you guys so much. Like so many cool questions. It was really fun. That's it for this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Jay Newton Small spoke at Town Hall Seattle on June 13th. Thank you again to Jenny Cecil Moore for our recording. Tune in again soon.